My name is Rachel Gilfarb, and I'm a neuroscience PhD candidate at The Ohio State University. I care about a lot of things, but I have a passion for my field of neuroscience. I know I'm not alone in feeling this way, though. On this podcast, I interview other neuroscience graduate students across the globe to find out why the f- we should care about what they do. Hey, Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rachel, thanks so much for having me. For those of you that are that are tuning in, this is our second time recording this because I had a podcast nightmare and accidentally deleted our first go at this. <laughs> so <laughs> Kristen and I are very familiar with these topics, so we might actually end up going a little bit more off script this time, a little bit more uh, off the cuff, spontaneous scientific conversation. So uh, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, Once again, my name is Kristen Godale, and I'm a PhD candidate in the neuroscience graduate program at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, and I reside in the laboratory of Dr. Steve Danzer. Prior to graduate school, I received my bachelor's in science in uh, neuroscience and biology at Baldwin-Wallace University. Awesome. So can you talk specifically about what your lab looks at? Um, So the goal of the Danzer Labs research program is to understand how the brain develops um, epilepsy. So our lab seeks to understand the cellular and molecular mechanisms behind the development of epilepsy. And if we can understand these mechanisms, then new treatments and therapies can be designed to prevent and ultimately cure epilepsy. That's really, really interesting. So What do you study specifically within the greater context of the lab? My research is focused on understanding basic mechanisms of how, you know, epilepsy develops in the brain. Um, Basically, there are a lot of different anti-seizure drugs on the market um, available to use, but they fail to control seizures in one-third of epilepsy patients. And right now there's no clinically proven preventatives for patients with epilepsy. So there's an unmet need for novel disease modifying targets. Basically, we're interested in finding targets in the brain in different cell populations where we can understand how these cell populations work um, in response to specific drugs. And you know if these cell populations contribute to the um, excitatory inhibitory imbalance that happens in epilepsy. So my research, um, in my research, I look at this cool pathway called the mechanistic target of rapamycin, which is also known as as mTOR. mTOR regulates neuronal plasticity, proliferation, survival, growth, and a whole bunch of other stuff in the brain and body. Right now, animal models and clinical data strongly support the use of an mTOR antagonist called rapamycin um, in epilepsy conditions caused by mutations in this pathway. However, it's not really clear how these drugs can be translated into acquired epilepsies, um, like temporal lobe epilepsies. Acquired temporal lobe epilepsy can result um, from a range of neurological injuries, such as head trauma, stroke, or birth injuries. Um, Acquired epilepsies are not typically associated with mutations in the mTOR pathway. However, we do see enhanced mTOR pathway signaling 
in almost all acquired rodent epilepsy models that have been studied. For example, mTOR hyperactivation occurs following focal cortical dysplasia, systemic canic acid, pilocarpine status epilepticus, and a bunch of other um, rodent models. Additionally, in tissue collected from patients with temporal lobe epilepsy, we do see enhanced mTOR signaling, which is really cool. So evidence for mTOR hyperactivation in animal models of epilepsy has led to a host of studies aimed at determining whether blocking mTOR signaling with mTOR antagonist rapamycin is indeed anti-epileptogenic. Encouragingly, we have found that rapamycin has, can reduce disease development and severity in many of these studies. So like this is all really good news, very cool, impactful, but the biggest question that stands in the way of using this type of drug in acquired epilepsies is we don't really understand where rapamycin acts in the brain from a cell population perspective. So in my research, I developed a novel viral approach to knock out specific genes in the mTOR pathway, which allows me to look at the effects of individual epileptic brain cells when the genes are removed. The outcome of this project will demonstrate if these specific mTOR genes cause abnormal morphology in this cell population called dentic granule cells under epileptic conditions. And if we do see that these dentic granule cells, um, if, if their abnormal morphology um, or pathology is prevented um, after these genes are knocked out, then that tells us that, hey, this cell population probably has something to do with um, rapamycin and can really um, bring a lot of insights um, to how we approach clinical therapies in the near future. At the beginning of that awesome explanation, you mentioned something really critical to uh, what causes seizures, which is an imbalance of excitation and inhibition in the brain. So can you talk for a second about why, first off, what are those two components? And second off, why is it so important that they remain in balance? We know that epileptic seizures are caused by an overactivation of, a, of, of the brain. Anti-seizure medications work by lowering that level of activity. So, so anti-seizure drugs can't cure the underlying causes of epilepsy. They just lower the threshold risk of having seizures. Um, so that's why you know, we still have this problem. Um, but, you know, back to the inhibitory excitatory elements of the neural network, basically um, in epilepsy, there are unpredictable synchronized firing of large neuron populations um, that happen that then lead to this excitatory inhibitory balance within the circuitry. Now, the literature indicates that um, hyperexcitability occurs during the transition um, to seizure when excitatory glutamatergic activity increases while the inhibitory GABAergic synaptic input is weakened. So a frequently studied cell type in epileptogenesis or the development of epilepsy is the GABAergic interneuron. And when um, the GABA is released, these neurons are traditionally regarded as like an inhibitory network. Interactions between these interneuron populations and excitatory cells usually 
are used to determine the neural mechanism of the seizure. And right now, a well-established hypothesis for why, why seizures occur is that the ability for the GABA inhibition um, to counterbalance, counterbalance the membrane depolarization of the action potential is decreased. And therefore, um, this modification within this neural network facilitates the synchronization of the excitatory cells. Now, I guess I could use this um, now known information to maybe transition into the dente gate hypothesis, um, which is uh, kind of, I guess it's not a dogma, but it's the main hypothesis right now um, for why temporal lobe epilepsy develops. Um, FYI, there are a lot of different epilepsies, like way too many to count. Um, it's rather sad that there are so many epilepsies because it's already really difficult to understand one epilepsy. Um, there's this Curing the Epilepsies Research Conference that happens every so often, um, sponsored by NIH. We had our recent one in, I think it was January. And a main concern that, you know, scientists, clinicians, and patient advocates have advocates had was that why haven't we cured any epilepsies? And every, this was kind of a hard topic to um, discuss because most um, hardcore academics, they kind of want to explore science, explore mechanisms, but most patient advocates, um, their proposals mainly want us as scientists to focus on one or two epilepsies cure those and then move on to the next like 10 or 20 epilepsies, but it's hard. Um, but anyway, sorry, I kind of rambled on there. Um, and I, I don't remember what you originally asked well, me, Rachel. Um, well, it was, that is totally fine because I actually wanted to transition into um, this interplay between uh, epilepsy patient advocates and researchers, right? Because you have yeah. a very um, unique role in that relationship and that you that you are both. Yeah, you know, that's right. I, sorry guys. Um, so FYI, I, I do have epilepsy. And um, that's why sometimes when I talk about the science, I kind of get um, caught up sometimes in the feels in a way. Um, because I, I think about my past and my journey to get to this point. Um, so yeah, my passion for basic science stems from having epilepsy and that's why I wanted to study this disease. I've lived with epilepsy since I was a very young child, I think one or two. Um, when diagnosed with epilepsy, you experience a lot of changes in life, like increased hospital visits, um, all these different medications you have to try memory issues, school attendance, and as an adult, um, you have to face um, employment discrimi discrimination when you're dating or swiping on Tinder or Bumble. Like you have to think about, oh my gosh, I have to tell this person I have epilepsy eventually. And um, like, I, I also can't drive, which is quite annoying, but um, gig culture like um, Uber and Lyft have made I have really changed my life um, recently, so that's nice. But 
basically as a kid, when you're growing up with this, um, it's a little difficult. And I grew up with epilepsy in the late 90s, which was not a great time because there was an existing negative stigma associated with me having epilepsy. I used to not really tell anyone I had this, um, even at the beginning of grad school, because I was really afraid of you know, what people would think of it. When I interviewed for graduate school, um, it was really funny because um, they were asking me, how do you know so much about epilepsy? Why are you so interested in this? And I didn't tell them that I had it. So I had to make up some bogus, <laughs> some bogus answer like, oh, I just really like it. It's so cool. Like, <laughs> but you know, um, I was just afraid I'd be um, discriminated against. But you know, everything worked out in hindsight and I became more open about um, epilepsy and my experience around the second year of my graduate career, because I actually um, had this medical emergency called status epilepticus, which means you're having seizures constantly and you're not coming back to consciousness, lasting about five minutes. And if that keeps happening, you actually go into a seizure coma, which happened to me. <laughs> I don't really remember much about it, but um, my um, boyfriend, now husband, told me that like they told him I wasn't gonna wake up. It, sorry guys, it's getting like really intense and feels, but um, I just want to communicate. Like I, I'm really after that event, I changed and I had to tell everyone about my personal experience with epilepsy and things we could do to make it better with just, I think um, to make the stigma go away, you have to talk about these things. And now um, we, have a, we also have a lot of great organizations that also help people with epilepsy. My favorite is Cure Epilepsy. Um, I actually work with them um, on pretty frequently um, with patient education initiatives. But anyway, yeah, so that's, that's kind of my personal story on this, but that's why you know, eventually I was so interested in this because I grew up um, people telling me, you know, you can't do anything, you have epilepsy. Um, there was a time where I, would, I was in a hospital because I was having a bunch of seizures and <laughs> my um, neurologist, um, since he knew that I was interested in the brain because I wanted to understand what was happening to me, he brought over this neurology book and I began to read it in my hospital bed and I just thought it was so cool and I, he was like one of the only neurologists that told me that I can maybe do something, but you know, I have to work hard and whatever, all, all the stuff people usually tell you, but it was kind of um, a bit life-changing for me as well. But anyway, uh, Rachel, we could get back to the other, the original question. Um, that was seriously, that was a beautiful answer. Um, I, I relate, I, um, I have type one diabetes, and um, I have always been really interested in psychology, um, which the two don't really seem to merge. Um, right. You wouldn't think that they merge, um, but then I found this really tiny, amazing field of uh, psychoneuroendocrinology. Uh, and now I study how hormones affect the brain. Um, and we both- right. That's so cool, Rachel. Yeah. And we both lived happily ever after study. We both lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like for, <laughs> we just have to get done with these PhD programs. <laughs> oh my God. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of hormones in the brain, um, since we last spoke, uh, I started doing a little bit of research on the brain uh, and GABA over the course of the menstrual cycle, just because I was, I don't know, interested uh, in regards to inhibition over the menstrual cycle. And I actually found quite a bit of literature showing that seizure susceptibility changes over the cycle. Yes, yeah, it does. Um, disclaimer, I don't really know a lot about this topic, so science-wise, but I can attest to you know, as a patient with epilepsy, I do usually experience um, an increase in the frequency of seizures during my menstrual cycle. So yeah, definitely relatable. That's so interesting. Yeah. So I know a little bit more about it from, from the, uh, from the actual neuro side, but that's. Yes. Yeah. Rachel, just please like, give me like a brief overview. Okay, brief, brief overview about what's going on in your brain over the menstrual cycle <laughs> to increase. <laughs> Tell me um, more. Let me, yeah, let me let me explain to you uh, what's happening. Um, Ooh. But but basically, there's there's uh, over the menstrual cycle there are changes in both estrogen and progesterone, and depending on the cycle depends on the hormone profile at that particular moment. Um, and uh, one of the main progesterone metabolites called allopregnanolone is actually a positive allosteric modulator of um, GABA-A receptors. So a positive allosteric modulator is something that interacts with particular receptors to increase its efficacy. So at GABA-A receptors, um, you know what GABA-A receptors are, but for, for everyone else, um, GABA-A GABA receptors are specific, they, they form ion channels to affect the excitability of a neuron. So typically uh, what GABA-A receptors do in, well, in this regard is to decrease the excitability. Um, and with the interaction of allopregnanolone as a positive allosteric modulator of these GABA-A receptors, um, it changes the excitability potential of the brain. Now, you may think that this, this could be um, counterintuitive uh, and allo, or allopregnanolone, sorry, allo for short, um, it, hasn't this like inverted U dose curve. And really? so depending on where you are on this hormonal cycle, how um, receptive your GABA-A receptors are to the activity of this hormone and your susceptibility for seizures at all affect, come together and compound and then influence your resulting menstrual cycle induced seizure. Wow, cool. Well, not cool, but cool. <laughs> I feel like I say, not, I feel like that's not cool for me. <laughs> yeah, the most commonly used phrase in science, not cool, but cool. <laughs> not cool. I mean, not great, uh, but 
hey, as a scientist, I think that's pretty freaking cool. Our field's coming together. Yes. Yes. <laughs> synergy. <laughs> synergy, synergy. I wanted to talk, a, so this, this research that I was talking about that I was referencing specifically uh, is specific to the hippocampus. Now, I also know that you happen to love the hippocampus. Love. Um, do, you, do you wanna talk about your love for the hippocampus? Um, yes, Rachel, I will talk about my love for the hippocampus. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to talk about my love for the hippocampus, we need to talk about um, an area in your brain called the temporal lobe. So you have two temporal lobes in your brain, one on each side of your head um, by your temples, which is by your ears. And the temporal lobe is an area of the brain that processes memories, sounds, interprets vision, produces speech, understands language, and then some other stuff. Um, most cases of temporal lobe epilepsy in adults can also be localized to the middle area of the temporal lobe, which is also called the measle temporal lobe. Now, the current hypothesis, which I think I briefly um, touched on earlier in this talk, um, but basically uh, current hypothesis of how temporal lobe epilepsy develops is focused around a structure called the hippocampus, which I love. So, and the hippocampus is embedded deep in the temporal lobe. And the purpose of the hippocampus, or I guess not the purpose, but the function of the hippocampus is it plays a vital role in regulating learning, memory, encoding, um, and spatial navigation, and a bunch of other stuff too. So the hippocampus is actually vulnerable to epileptogenic injury, um, which causes it to exhibit a lot of different pathologies and cell loss. In addition, um, neurons in the hippocampus are among the last to be generated in the brain and are one of the few population of neurons that can produce um, throughout your life as an adult, which is really cool because I know um, really when we're taught about the brain and like, I guess, when are you taught about, when, when do people teach you about the brain? I can't remember, wow. not in middle school. Do no, you learn I, about it in high school? <laughs> I a little bit about the brain in like uh, middle school biology and then we touched okay. on it again in in like ninth grade biology okay but the main thing like when you're first learning about the brain and you're learning about like the cell cycle and all that wonderful stuff um your teachers tell you that neurons can't like regenerate like once they're formed that's it so then they tell you, you know, don't do drugs or anything bad because it kills your brain cells and then you don't have them anymore, which is bad. But the hippocampus and one other part um, of your brain called uh, the olfactory bulb, those two places generate cells all throughout your life, which is wonderful because we need them. But um, basically, um, going back to epilepsy, um, these neuron populations that are produced in the hippocampus, these um, new neurons that are developed are usually disrupted during the development of epilepsy or epileptogenesis. This causes these short circuits to form in the hippocampus and promote seizures. 
And this is also called, I think I mentioned this earlier too, the dentate gate hypothesis. So you can think about it in like your brain, um, the hippocampus receives input from its circuit and then it goes through this thing called the dentate gyrus. The dentate gyrus in the hippocampus acts as a gatekeeper or filter in the circuit. So there's a lot of information that comes through this circuit, but not a lot of it gets through the rest of the circuit because the dentate gyrus filters it out, stops a lot of this activity from getting through with its dentate granule cells. So in my brain, as a person with epilepsy, my dentate gyrus will fail um, to do this um, because the filter, sometimes the filter doesn't work. Um, it makes it easier for more information to get past the dentate and into the rest of the circle, so that circle, circuit, which then contributes to this excitatory inhibitory imbalance. And basically the dentate granule cells um, they begin to develop all these abnormal appearances and they begin to excite themselves and synapse onto other dentate granule cells, dendrites or axons. They just, they, they can go places where they're not supposed to go. And we don't know why they do that, but it's cool, but not cool. Um, but basically that's the problem. Um, we are really having an epilepsy. We have this um, dentate granule cells going places where they shouldn't, exciting neurons where th that they shouldn't. And that's um, right now the hypothesis um, we base all of our research on um, in my lab, at least in our rodent models. Speaking of rodent models, do your rodents spontaneously get seizures? Like how do you study this? Rodents, um, from what I know, they, you have to induce this um, status epilepticus event, which I talked about earlier, um, like that can like kill you. But um, the model of status epilepticus in rodent models can be done a bunch of different ways. In my lab, um, we use a model called pilocarpine, Basically our field doesn't like, this is the best model to use to induce reliable status epilepticus. Pilocarpine works um, by, and it's an agonist for muscarinic acetylcholine receptors and it promotes excitatory activity, which then leads to brain damage. Now there's, a, there's like this frustration in our field where, you know, you could do pilocarpine at this specific dose with this much injected into the animal on like this specific day and you'll get like all of your mice will end up developing status and happy days. But then there's like another lab where they do their pilo pilocarpine status epilepticus um, induction and it doesn't work for them and all their animals die and it's awful. Um, so there's like, in the epilepsy field, you know, pilocarpine is the best to use, but there's a lot of like, it's not consistent basically, but right now it's like the only um, reliable model we have to like, in, to study this. And it's kind of, so I actually have to do one of these experiments tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, which I don't really like doing um, 
this experiment because again, I, I have like a personal connection to epilepsy and I, I just don't, I don't like watching seizures. <laughs> uh, I don't like um, giving seizures to peep to animals, but without this experiment, I can't study how um, epileptogenesis becomes a thing and I can't study how to prevent it from happening. So um, yeah, it's, it's quite a predicament, but we, we do rescue the rodent, the rodents after um, status, after they've been in status for a while, just like a human. Um, and then we also monitor their um, post-recovery. Um, I monitor them like all week to make sure they're okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I think it's actually the hardest thing um, of my, as part of my PhD, I don't enjoy it, but there's no other way to do this. And that's, that's the beauty of animal models. They allow you to explore new um, basic science, but you know, the, the animals, um, like you, their, their sacrifice for the greater good of um, research and it's hard, um, but you know, we, we don't have any other way to study it at all. You said that you rescued the animals after um, after yeah. after some time seizing. What is that? Is that um... so? It's just using um, a drug called diazepam. Mm -hmm. um, it's a benzodiazepine. It um, basically calms you down. So, like people have given this to me, <laughs> and um, when you when you get this drug, um, it's it's for humans. You usually have to give it. Um, well, back up. So like if you have a kid with epilepsy or even an adult with epilepsy and there's a caregiver, um, if they're prone to tonic-clonic seizures, which is the most common type of seizure associated with temporal lobe epilepsy, these, these seizures are like super scary, really terrible. Um, basically your body shakes and stiffens and it feels like you can't, um, like you're stuck. Um, some people lose consciousness. Um, I, let's see, the last tonic-clonic seizure I had, um, it, it feels like I, like you're in your body, but you can't control your body. So, you know, but basically back to the diazepam, usually your caregiver will have this and distribute it um, for humans either, um, with your rectum or now there is a new one that could be distributed through your nose, which is nice. And then you could also have these little tablets you could give the person um, as well. The only problem with the tablets is you kind of have to like, you know, I don't know, like throw it in their mouth because if you try to place it in there, you could actually run the risk of like the person in the seizure biting off your finger, which is not great, um, but with, <laughs> but with, with the mice, I, I give, I inject um, some diazepam in, the, in them and basically they, they do the same thing that a human would do. They, their body starts to loosen up, um, they start to drool um, and then they eventually stop seizing and then you, you're, um, say, you give them saline and um, put them in a warm area and just monitor them very closely to make sure 
that they're okay. So same thing that you would do with a human, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, it, it's, it's hard. Is, um, is diazepam also an anti-anxiety medication? So yeah, um, it is, but it's, it's so, okay. I, I also have anxiety. Uh, uh, but <laughs> well, yeah, of course I do. But, but anyway, um, I remember one of my, um, doctors wanting me to prescribe, like he wanted to prescribe me like this, um, benzodiazepine, but like they usually don't prescribe that because, um, you could get addicted to it and the efficiency of the drug can actually go down. So it doesn't work anymore. So they usually stick um, to prescribing this to like patients with this type of epilepsy. Now, if you keep having seizures and you keep giving these diazepam rescue medications, it's like the same thing. So eventually um, it doesn't work, which is bad. So then, um, yeah, so then they have other things they could do, um, but you have to go to the hospital and um, it's more, I don't know, intense. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Totally. Speaking of uh, what happens when people have seizures, um, how are you supposed to take care of someone that is in the middle of seizing? I feel like this is a necessary PSA. Yeah, this, this is definitely, since we've covered all types of epilepsy fun facts, um, if you ever see someone have a seizure, um, especially a tonic clonic seizure. You could think of those as like the ones you see in movies, like the stereotypical ones where like, you know, they fall down and stuff. Um, you wanna turn them on their side and to, op to make sure um, they don't like choke on their drool and everything. If you turn them on their side, that makes sure the airway um, is open and they, they don't do anything um, harmful to themselves. Um, make sure to remove all objects that they could get hurt on. Um, if it's, I don't know, if it's like in the middle of a store and there's stuff everywhere, you just kind of want to create a space for them to have the seizure. Um, you can't stop the seizure. So you kind of have to just let them have it. And if the seizure lasts for more than five minutes, you want to call 911 because this um, is a dangerous event that can lead the person to go into status epilepticus, which we've talked about multiple times during the podcast, um, but you know, it could lead to death. So if it's not treated. So um, if you do those things, you're, pro you're probably gonna save this person's life. So just- you, Do you wanna call 911 maybe when you're approaching five minutes? Because once you're at five minutes, then it, then you go into status epilepticus, right? Yeah. So, so really like around two to three minutes, you're going to start getting some brain damage. Um, right. But, so, yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're really not familiar with this type of scenario and you know that there's no rest, like their caregiver isn't around, you don't have access to their diazepam or rescue medication they have to take to get out of the seizure, then you probably want to call um, 911 um, within, I guess, I guess you're right, Rachel, probably like two to three minutes because um, it will take some time for the ambulance to probably get there. 
Well, I'm just thinking about, um, I'm thinking about diabetic seizures and oh, yeah. that, you know, that is something that as soon as that happens, you need to be calling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. Um, and so I'm, the idea of waiting while someone has a seizure to being like, okay, has it been two minutes? Now let's call that, that it's just really foreign to me as someone that only has yeah, experience I, with, with diabetes. I agree. Yeah. Um, that's so when you get, so when you go through something called like seizure first aid training, it's offered by the epilepsy foundation. Um, you can do it for free there. They usually tell you to like call around five minutes, but I think it's because like, they're not sure. Maybe, I don't know. Like, I'm not really sure you would, why you would wait, but I think it just depends on like, if you're familiar with seizure identification and understanding the situation, or you can identify this and you know, wow, this is going to be bad. Or like if they're, if they're caregivers around and they have access to this rescue medication, then you wouldn't have to call the ambulance because the, the person will be okay. Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess it depends on a bunch of different stuff. Well, because I can also imagine that, you know, if you're having a seizure once every couple of weeks, that it can be a pain to call an ambulance every single day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I also have, I have like different types of seizures. So I also have um, focal seizures and those types of seizures are like localized to like one region of the brain. They don't spread all over the brain at all. So when you look at me while I'm having a seizure, these focal seizures, I'm like staring um, for about 15 seconds, unresponsive. But after the seizure is done, I go through this like post-ictal period where like I, I'm not doing normal Kristen things. I, obviously something happened and, you know, like I'm not acting like myself. But in that case, um, like I've had people call the ambulance, but I didn't go in the ambulance because I was fine um, within like an hour. So, I mean, it, it just like, if you start to have a bunch of seizures, you want to call the ambulance. But it's, a, it's definitely a thing that I know I deal with. Um, I'm really thankful for people calling ambulances for me um, every time I have seizures, but Sometimes it isn't necessary, but I think it's better to be overcautious and overprotective of people you love rather than to leave it up to chance. For sure. For sure. Well, thank you for that awesome insight. It's it's really, it's really powerful to hear about not just the science, but um, measures that you can take to help people while while they're um, seizing from some from a scientist that has epilepsy. It's really an amazing. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think like the overall message, if you were to take anything from this podcast would really just be the care for people. Um, maybe go to, you could go to, um, the epilepsy foundation's website or, um, cure epilepsy to learn more about how to recognize seizures, what they look like, um, different kinds of seizures, but, I think the overall message is just to be um, observant. And if this happens to you, just know by attending to this situation, you'll, you'll save that person's life. And, you know, so just be aware. I don't know, let's see, 
Rachel, have you ever seen a seizure? Uh, yeah, I've actually had a seizure. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. My, great. my diabetic seizure though. So I'm the, the mechanisms, I mean, yeah, it's still hyper expectation of the brain. Um, but I don't know if anything contributing to it would be the same. Yeah. So like anyone could have a seizure, but if you continue to have like unprovoked recurrence, mm -hmm. um, seizures that will lead to the diagnosis of epilepsy. So like if, if you have a seizure, you know, don't freak out at first because, you know, doesn't mean you have epilepsy, but definitely for sure get that, get that looked at. Um, but yeah, um, but anyway, yeah, uh, whether you have epilepsy or not, seizures are not fun to experience. Um, I don't know if you remember anything from your seizure event at all, but no. it's, it's not good. See, I mean, seizures are so cool. Um, well, again, not, but yes, they are. Um, I always get the question um, from people that um, aren't in the field. Um, they're always like, oh, well, how come like you have seizures and then you don't? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> how come my brain isn't in a constant state of seizures? Why, why do I have a seizure on this day but not that day like why and if we knew the answer to that question like that person would get a Nobel um, prize for sure but I, I don't know I, I think it's more of a mechanistic thing like I, I don't know why I'm not having a seizure now mm -hmm. I don't at all I who knows but I mean my brain probably knows but I can't right. I can't understand <laughs> You know, there there must be something with like circadian rhythms or I I think it could be a bunch of different things. Like I know we all study these different things and we're kind of all in our little labs alone, but I, I think to really answer why people don't have seizures all the time is like should be a multi-prong approach with oh for sure a bunch of different types of fields for sure. But that requires um, money <laughs> and <laughs> everything, uh, everything ends with money at the end of the day. And it's, it's expensive to do all these experiments. It's expensive to have a mouse colony, to buy your reagents. Um, I mean, like when I do immunohistochemistry, which is basically a method, um, I have like brain slice tissue mounted on some slides. And if I wanna know, is this marker there or is that marker there in these cells, I use something called an antibody, which will bind to whatever I'm looking at. A single antibody is like $500 for an, ex an insanely small amount, which is like, wow, um, but everything's expensive. No, everything. So we need we need to continue to support science at a federal level with the NIH, NSF, DOD, like those um, skinny budgets <laughs> every year are very important, and it's um, you got to keep an eye on all this um, science policy stuff. It's important. It's funny. Uh, funny that you mentioned policy. Uh, we we're both involved in the early career policy ambassador program through SFN. 
So, um, which is Society for Neuroscience. Right, with the Society for Neuroscience. I define one acronym and not the other. Um, and you are very involved in um, policy. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, when you're in the ECPA, you have the opportunity to um, advocate on the Hill every year with SFN. And we talk to a bunch of policymakers, um, their staffers about you know different asks the organization has every year. And this could vary between what type of professional organization you're um, affili affiliated with. But I think ours this year were an increase in NIH budget um, to support ethical animal research practices, and then to join a variety of caucuses, depending if you're in the House or Senate. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically it. Um, and, you know, federal, government is really important, but um, my advocacy and policy interests um, are really more at a local level. Um, I really like state government. I, I think um, you really have um, a bigger voice when you advocate for issues locally. Um, right now, we are, I'm working with um, a nonprofit in Cincinnati called the Epilepsy Alliance Ohio and um, a bill in the Ohio legislature was just introduced, um, HB 373, we'll see if it passes, but this bill would require all schools um, that are pre-K through 12 to have um, seizure training for educators, um, to have seizure action plans um, established for each child, which a seizure action plan is basically a document that fills out some um, basic information like your name, contacts, etc. It also has information on what medications you take, what the pills look like, if you have rescue medication on hand for your school nurse, what each seizure looks like, because some people have more than one type of seizure, your doctor's name, etc., um, and it seems like, well, duh, you know, you should, you should have that information on hand if you have seizures and are going to school. But it is not a requirement. Um, I didn't have this when I was in school, at all. I I didn't have this in college, but college isn't. We're not focused on that. But yeah, it's it's like a no-brainer thing to have. But basically, this bill would um, require that to be a thing, pre-K through twelve. And also, it the bill also highlights how to be inclusive um, with students with epilepsy, what um, stigmas they face, um, what comorbidities they have to experience in class. And it basically makes them feel like not um, ashamed or afraid um, to say they have epilepsy um, and just makes their learning environment more comfortable. And, um, yeah, so we're we're working on that right now in Ohio, and um, there's still a bit of work to do, but we we have um, you know we we feel good about it. So that's that's a one recently new thing that I do, and then um, during COVID, um, we me and then a former ECPA Jennifer Petriti Cram, 
she and I formed this a student policy group with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Basically, um, so scientists know that you know there is a need for advocacy, um, especially early career researchers or graduate students and postdocs. But it's difficult for um, early career researchers to get involved in this because we're busy in the lab, um, or they just you know it's hard for them to have time. So by creating this student-run policy group, we've given um, opportunities to these early career researchers to get kind of get resources on what exactly advocacy is in science, how to communicate your science. Um, we've run little um, workshops with, in collaboration with Union of Concerned Scientists about empowering yourself with your research and communicating it to the public. And then um, we have a seminar series with po policy professionals from all over um, America that we bring them in and they talk about their careers and stuff. But yeah, so that's been going pretty well. Um, we're coming up on our year two of existence. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. I I'm feeling okay about it, but um, I'm losing my, my um, co-founder. So she's on to bigger and better things, but I know it will be okay. And then I think, and then we also have another initiative with local PhD students in Ohio. Um, we're really interested here to create a policy fellowship as like a postdoctoral option for PhDs when they graduate to then have a role in um, local government with a fellowship to get exposed to science policy. I think that's definitely the most difficult project that I'm on right now, but you know, all of this stuff takes a lot of time to form and digest and put together. So hopefully, you know, that will be okay as well. Um, we're called the Ohio Science Policy Consortium, and we are in, in the, on the ground organizing and trying to get that up and running at the moment. So yeah, so I guess that's a bunch of different things. Um, I think um, science policy, from what I've learned so far, it's really like, it could be anything in a way. <laughs> I don't know. Would you agree, Rachel? Like, what, what are you working on right now as an ECPA? As an ECPA, currently, I'm working with a fantastic group of neuroscience graduate students in, in my program, actually, at Ohio State. Uh, and we are writing a op-ed uh, that we are trying to publish in the Columbus Dispatch of wow. our, our newspaper um, about the, so we're, so we're still trying to hone our focus, but the, but we just finished up a journal club of like six or seven weeks discussing the policy behind um, the FDA, the role of the FDA and the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission um, in the role, like their roles in uh, allowing uh, uh, wellness supplements to be bought and consumed by the American public. 
and you're writing specifically about why uh, these wellness products might not be the bang that you paid your buck for, um, specifically in the realm of the brain. So if you see a wellness product being uh, marketed as preventing cognitive decline, um, we want to write a piece basically saying, okay, well, we don't believe that it would um, affect, that it would prevent cognitive decline. This is why. On top of that, the FDA has not looked at this product and considering the role of the FDA, it's important that they look at this kind of product. And lastly, the this is not under the jurisdiction of the FTC, right? The advertising that they use, if they're vague enough, they can say anything. And so putting that into 200 words as an op-ed, that's gonna be hard, but it's 200 something- words. 200 words? 200 words, we didn't realize it was gonna be so what? small. Yeah, so, so we're still trying to hone specifically what um, we're trying to do, but that's like, that's my big project because it's important as neuroscience graduate students to understand the impact that we can have on wider society, not just in the academic ivory tower, but in a accessible and easily communicated way for especially the constituents of Columbus, like to, right. to protect themselves from a potentially harmful wellness product uh this right. so, those um those brain pills i think that's what you're talking about yeah. like I, I so i've had like close um people to me like take those like um yeah they've they've uh bought them from questionable websites because i don't know why but they well, really just thought that it would make their like brain better even though there's no science behind it and the products are so well advertised and marketed perfectly that you know if I didn't know if I was not educated about the brain or you know general science um, I'd probably buy into that as well honestly yeah well well two things one it they play to uh, they being advertisers play to people that are desperate to prevent um cognitive decline whatever that means to them um i see it in my family i see it in my friends i see it in my family friends people are truly desperate to protect their brain and because we we know so little about it um relatively we know very little about it um, the idea of this of a miracle pill is enticing. And then second, uh, these are not products that are just available on sketchy websites. I was in CVS and saw a bottle of these pills for $65. What? CVS. No way. CVS. And I was I was just like, this is this is crazy. This isn't three o'clock in the morning with some infomercial telling you that it's you know, you're gonna have more synapses than the normal than a than a normal person because you're five dollars. Five dollars for a hundred pills at CVS in the vitamin aisle. Yeah, That's ridiculous. You could go like 
shop or something for $65. Like like weird brain pills. Yeah. That's like date night. Why are you spending? It is date night. That's like pizza night. Not well, more than pizza. I don't like, you shouldn't spend $65 on pizza. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so gearing back, uh, I have two more questions for you. Oh, okay. So the first question that is going to wrap us up is um, why should we care about this? I, I know we talked about this extensively, but give me like a two, three sentence summary. Why the fuck should we care? Okay. Um, why the fuck should we care about epilepsy? Um, it affects 3.4 million people in America alone. These people feel rejected from society and are desperate for new treatments, um, caregivers. They have um, children and young adults that feel hopeless and there's no treatments available that will cure their person with epilepsy because they're probably not responding to current anti-seizure drugs. So we do care about this because we do this basic science for the benefit of the patient community. And that's why we should care because we don't want people to suffer from um, healthcare bills. Like some of these, so without healthcare, one of my medications would cost over $1,200 a month. And a lot of people don't have healthcare. So this is not only, a medical thing, a brain thing. This is also a financial thing. And some of these people without a cure, some of them can't get jobs because they can't get to work because they can't drive. They can't, some people can't have normal relationships because they're afraid of like exposing their epilepsy. I mean, it comes with a, a lot of comorbidities as well. Like I guess that's more than three sentences, but we should care because these are people and as humans, we need to care about other people. And that's why we're doing this research. Amazing. Amazing. So then my last question is, uh, do you want to plug anything? I know you're on Twitter. Plug anything. Um, I, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Wow, <laughs> Twitter. Um, it's at Kristen Godale. Um, I don't have any cool websites or anything. I haven't hopped on that train yet. Um, it's really just Twitter. And I, I've i um, written a couple um, op-eds and pol- like advocacy pieces. I recently published one in Neuro Online by Society for Neuroscience about um, how to advocate for ethical animal research, which is more difficult than you would expect because a lot of people aren't really like they think of animals and fuzzy cats and dogs and how cute they are. And then when you're like, oh, I use animals in my research, it's like, oh my gosh, are you serious? So I I wrote about that. Um, It it was just published on July 15th. So you should definitely check it out um, if you can. Other than that, um, if you wanna know more about epilepsy, Um, Be sure to Google either Epilepsy Foundation or Cure Epilepsy to find out more. Um, And that's about it. Thanks for having me, Rachel. This was so much fun. Thank you for coming on.
interested in being on the podcast message me at r gilfarb on twitter to tell the world why they should care about what you study like what you hear make sure to rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen see you next month